not feel like We can do a cold open. Yeah, we could do a cold open. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about? I mean, that's like, the point of a cold like? open is that you jump right into the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know? You're listening to Advancing Education, the Alberta Student Podcast, where we talk about student issues, news, we conduct interviews, we do all sorts of other kinds of things like that. My name is Emmanuel Barker, and I'll be your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the episode. Breaking news. Uh, John, welcome back. Part two of the Alberta Budget 2021 review. This is the Kowalski analysis portion of our conversation. Um, Last week, you know, why don't you do it? Why don't you start off by saying what our predictions were? I know I'm sure people who have listened to this listened to the last episode and they know, but why don't you summarize and then we can, uh, you know, touch on what actually happened. So for my uh, very technical summary of the budget, I would like to submit, ah, and, uh, <laughs> the budget was uh, worse, I think, than what we were anticipating. So the big prediction that we had was that there would be a, a 3 to 5% cut in the Campus Alberta grant. Turns out it was a 6.2% cut to the Campus Alberta grant, although uh, it is 6.2%. It is not equally applied across all institutions. So we are anticipating that some institutions got cut way more than that, and some got cut a lot less. So right. it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out later. Yeah, so your our guess was um, worst-case scenario, 5% cut to the Campus right. Alberta grant, funding grant for all post-secondary institutions in Alberta, and the actual um, actual cut was 6.2% uh, allocated to the institutions differently. And we don't know what that is because the government decided not to publish that again. Yes, yeah, that's right. And then we had made a number um, of other sort of assumptions or guesses. Our guesses were that we would hear some more stuff about student accessibility, that there would be very few capital projects, um, and a number of other things. Do you have anything else you want to touch on there? Yeah, so we were right on the number of capital projects. Very, very few capital projects were announced, just mainly continuations of, of previous announcements. Um, the accessibility pieces were virtually uh, not mentioned at all uh, in the budget and any of the budget documents. Uh, instead, the budget uh, just kept referring to the Alberta 2030 review and that uh, eventually that review would be released publicly and, and we we're just going to implement the recommendations from that review. So. Really, and this is what really upset me yesterday, is that uh, there's no detail in the budget. This is the third largest ministry in in the government of Alberta. Uh, It's about a $6 billion ministry that gets spent every year. Uh, And the government's given us absolutely no indication, no plans, no details about what's going to happen in the sector beyond next academic year. Uh, it, it really does feel as if this government's entire plan is, uh, well, COVID's happening right now, and until we get COVID under control, then everything else is on pause. Yeah, so, I would say that that's a very, very accurate disappointing assessment. disappointing because we were expecting a lot of very interesting, valuable things to come out of that budget, and, and really we got nothing. Okay, and then a little bit of good news that we got. Uh, supplemental grants to the institutions are unchanged, which means that the disabilities grant, the mental health grant, those are continued. Although it doesn't exactly meet the ASAC call, uh, the call was to develop a multi-year commitment to the mental health grant. We did not, unfortunately, see that. 
No, um, I do think, though, that we've been pushing the needle on mental health. And I think that this government and, and basically all the stakeholders in the sector understand that mental health is, is vital and needed. But yeah, again, it was just a, a one-year commitment, a continuation of current funding. What, what ASECT asked for was a multi-year commitment with funding indexed to the rate of inflation so that we saw increases every year, uh, as well as some changes in how that money is actually uh, administered and, and given out on campus. But uh, again, it just seems as if this government is punting the ball down the field and they don't want to make any critical decisions right now on the advanced, advanced education portfolio. And so they're, they're going to wait. They're going to wait until they have their ducks in a row. And uh, yeah, frankly, it was just very disappointing yesterday. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I totally agree. And there were a couple of other things that we're not really touching on. Like there was the um, the capital, you know, project line was, you know, left as it was basically. But there was a, um, a little bit of an increase and there's a new capital project going on at Mount Royal U- University where they're, I think they're building a library, something like that. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, okay. Um, thanks for that analysis there, John. Uh, I now have the distinct pleasure of introducing a new guest to the, to the podcast, my good friend, Jason Roth. Uh, Jay, why don't you, uh, introduce yourself? Oh, well, thanks, Emmanuel. Hi, John. Well, just to your listeners, uh, I'm Jason Roth. I'm the advocacy director at the Students Association at Nate. I've been at Nate, uh, the Students Association Nate for 13 years now. And prior to that, I worked in federal politics. And so, uh, you know, what I do is I help our student executives with uh, research and external and government relations. And so I I work with you two a fair bit as well. So, yeah, I'm there to assist our student execs in their dealings with administration and with government and media. So, yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons why we got you on the web on the podcast here is because we want to talk about um, the budget from the perspective of people who have been around, you know, enough to experience a few budgets. And John has experienced budgets from the inside of the provincial government. And you you have had some experience around budget time in the federal perspective. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that project is like for everybody participating in that? Well, sure. Well, you know, it's funny. I've been following politics since I was really a little kid in in the 70s, you know, and I I don't recall. I, I have never once seen any government of any party at any level drop a budget that caused mass celebration, compliments and happiness. Uh, that, that's not what happened. Um, you almost made me spill my drink. I think that's a really realistic <laughs> assessment of what budgets are like. You know, I mean, the, the official opposition is there uh, to, to oppose there. No matter what government it is, the opposition is going to say that the budget is insufficient. And interest groups are often going to say that the budget is insufficient. If they were given $100 million, they're going to say it should have been $200 million. And if if there was a cut, they'll say, well, how dare you cut? I think the problem with post-secondary is that post-secondary keeps getting cut year after year after year. And it seems to be the first thing that they go after for some reason. Yeah. Um, and it, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Well, I guess I have some theories about that, why that is, but that would all be, you know, sort of in the opinion realm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the whole point of the podcast. I want to hear your opinions. I love hearing that kind of stuff. But uh, I think you've really hit the nail on the head with part of that assessment, which is like, generally speaking, nobody's really happy with budgets when they come out. It's always like a, a, a some kind of reckoning for some part of the budget based on ideological lines, based on finances available to the administration at the time, like all of those things factor into it. But you're really right about post-secondary that at least in, in most recent years, it's just been cut after cut. And I 
you know, that's that's a hard pill to swallow. So for either of you, here's a question coming out. Did anything stand out to you about this particular budget? Is there anything concerning about it? I know I have a thought that I would be interested in bringing in, but I'd love to hear if one of you has a, an insight right off the top of your head. Uh, the biggest kind of theme that struck me when I was going through all the budget documents was this government is planning for the next 12 months and that's it. They don't have any further plans beyond the next 12 months. And it's it's quite apparent when you're reading the budget documents that they have basically just, just thrown their hands up in the air, thrown in the towel and just said, COVID's happening. We're going to deal with COVID. And once that's over with, then we'll get back to the business of actually governing the province. But as of right now, they're they're just in crisis management mode. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good assessment. Jay, what do you think? Well, honestly, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily wrongheaded to think, look, we need to get through COVID before we start making longer term policy choices that are hard to undo. Right. Solid point. Um, Solid point. So, I, I mean, I guess I guess I have the, the one of the things that stands out to me and then a thing that I think is the most concerning. And they're two different things. The one thing that stands out to me is that, you know, a lot of people were expecting that maybe there might be some sort of revenue increase or tax increase or people are talking about, should we have a sales tax there? I mean, at the at the back end of the budget, you know, at 2023, 24, they're looking at the deficit being reduced to 8 billion, but they may well be lowballing their revenues because they're they're looking at oil being lower three years from now than it actually is today. And by a fact, you know, somewhere around 10 to $15 a barrel. And so they may well be doing, uh, you know, the classic under promise and over deliver uh, strategy on their budget. So I think I'd rather get two or even three years on the other side of this pandemic before we start adding an irreversible tax that you can never take away again and, and just see where, where we're at. The thing that concerns me the most, for, because I work with students and in post-secondary, is that the government seems to uh, be moving in a direction where they believe it's perfectly fine for a publicly administered and you know legislated and regulated post-secondary system to just not rely on public funding. You know, they're looking at by 2022-23 that post-secondary institutions should be finding 52% of their own funding. Yeah, but as opposed to right now, post-secondary, is it still a public post-secondary? And mm. and it makes it harder for them to control what they're doing. It, I don't, it is, it, it just seems to me to be an ideologically based decision, one that moves us closer towards an American style system of post-secondary. Yeah. yeah. And I think we Couldn't would find an assessment of that, that like, that's a very consistent sort of assessment, but I don't think that the, um, I don't think that this administration would necessarily take the heart. I think their argument would be that they developed the blue ribbon panel. They developed like the McKinsey review of post-secondary. And although my point was about the McKinsey panel, like the, the blue ribbon panel pointed out that there are, you know, changes that need to be made where institutions were finding more of their own source funding and that the proportion of tuition should be increased and that there should be a decrease in public funding for post-secondary. Like those are findings of the panel when they were done right when the right when the new administration came into into power when they got their mandate so that uh, i think would be their argument that they're like following the lines that had been drawn for them My well that's true but they're using a, a manual they're using a com, you know a, a comparative strategy you know we want to be in line with the averages of other provinces yeah and that's but, a totally weak argument in my mind that, right you know for you know they say that you know Alberta spent thirty six thousand five hundred per student on post secondary, whereas Quebec only spent twenty five thousand eight hundred. Well, okay, that's fine, but Quebec institutions 
according to the numbers that have come out of Cabo, are much more efficient in where they're spending their money. And tuition in I'll take Quebec's tuition. How about that? You know, why does and and so that leads us to the question: like, what is the Alberta advantage other than corporate tax rate? Yeah. Why can't a, why why can't the Alberta advantage be that tuition is more affordable? That we you know we're attracting more young people, not driving them away. I mean, why can't that be an Alberta advantage? Yeah, and there's not a conversation. I'm, not that I'm against you know, uh, competitive tax rate. You don't attract new and diverse kinds of businesses by having high taxes. But we could even, you know, we can raise taxes in Alberta and still be among the lowest. Yeah, exactly. And, there, you know, there's a conversation there to be had about the structure of the institutions that we're dealing with here in Alberta when you're using comparator provinces. Like you said, the Quebec institutions are much more, much more efficient. We've got a very top-heavy post-secondary system here where there's a lot of administrative uh, costs or what a person might call an administrative bloat with the institutions where they have really, really high costs going to their upper level administrative teams. And those are not areas where the cuts are coming down, even though those were what were dictated in the in the blue ribbon panel initially at the start of the mandate that I mentioned. And we're just not we're just not seeing those changes. Meanwhile, tuition is going up by 7% a year. Cut, cuts to funding are coming to the tune of five and a bit or 6.2 this year and pretty significantly over the course of only a couple of years so far. You know, like I think if you expected all of the institutions in Alberta, maybe even one of the institutions in Alberta to change the letterhead on their official documentation, it'd take them longer than two years to do it. <laughs> Like change well, is slow. I, I mean, you, you, one needs only go and take a look at the, the, the very well put together data on universityfinances.ca to see how well Quebec is doing vis-a-vis -vis places like, you know, Alberta universities. That said, you know, the, the McKinnon panel came out with, with, with its findings, but it was only applied to students. It wasn't applied to central administration. And, yeah. and I mean, I don't, why? I mean, why not, why, why not do the, the heavy lifting that makes your institutions, you know, more efficient instead of cutting at the bottom and leaving everything at the top as it is. Yeah, and be, to be completely fair, I think we are seeing some changes at the University of Alberta towards like, or or you know, towards changing their their um, the input costs or the way that they organize their institution. Those that's that's one thing, you know. But we're we're not seeing it wholesale. The same we're seeing it across the board with tuition or with the campus Alberta grants. John, you want to jump in there with something about the uh, McKinnon panel, or do you want me to go in on 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 my issue with it first? The only thing I was going to add, and and really I just want to agree with Jason, is that the government, the only detail in the budget that the government actually gave that was solid and that we can rely on, is that they want to go from fifty five percent funding, fifty five percent of the sector to fifty two percent down to forty eight, and and I couldn't agree with Jason more that fundamentally what the government is doing is taking our public education and making it not public anymore. It is no longer in a year or two, it will no longer be majority funded by public funding. And I, I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think it's part of Canadian values to have a publicly funded education system, publicly funded healthcare system. Um, these are just core Canadian pieces. And so, yeah, I'm really disappointed to see that from our government. I really was hoping that they were going to take, take our advice and recommendations and invest in this province through advanced education. We only have thousands and thousands and thousands of people waiting to get back into post-secondary right now. And it just seems like this government is using that opportunity to make a quick buck rather than investing in these people and, and having those long-term gains. Yeah, that's a that's a good lead into the to the two well the one thing but then the two things that I wanted to bring up the first one was sick shout out Jason to to Bill's website like that's universityfinances.ca is a, is a killer website the problem is 
from my side, my greatest concern with this budget is a, a lack of transparency. And one of the best ways you can see that is that the cuts to institutions are different, but we don't know how different because they don't, they decided again, not to publish the breakdown or the metric by which the institutions were going to be receiving their Campus Alberta grant. So websites like universityfinances.ca or even us, when we're doing our assessment and we're doing our breakdown of what the budget looks like, we can't tell our institutions or our associations an accurate representation of how the budget affects them because we're, we, we're, we are not privy to that information. It's just not released. So the lack of transparency affects it, I think, most strongly there. But the other part of the transparency piece is like we in our last podcast had predicted, yeah, there was going to be a cut, but there were going to be a bunch of other little good things, little policy changes. And we didn't see any of that reflected in the budget. There was some stuff about work integrated learning and a little bit about the capital projects that we had mentioned. But to the extent that we had hoped, we did not get very much information. And in all fairness, I think a lot of those changes are going to be implemented when the 2030 plan comes out, but we're still not looking at a release on the 2030 plan until March. No, 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 no. It's March. going it's going to March cabinet for March, and then it's going to be it's potentially going to be released sometime in April. But here's here's the tragedy, Emmanuel. This government really missed an opportunity. What is the budget? The budget actually doesn't mean any like the budget Paul, like the policy doc or the actual like document itself doesn't mean all that much. It's just a way to communicate policy decisions to the public. The only thing procedurally that matters is actually the estimates and the supply vote. Like those are the procedural things where the money actually gets gets voted on. But the, the budget document is a chance for the government to show off and to brag and to talk about all the new plans and crazy things that they want to do. And instead, uh, I mean, the biggest thing that they talked about was their their fight around public sector compensation. You know, it just it really did seem like a missed opportunity. If I was in government, I would have taken that as a perfect PR opportunity, uh, especially given all the turmoil and controversy that my party had just gone through over Christmas, I, I would have really used the budget as an opportunity to spread some good news and, and get that bad taste out of people's mouth. But instead, they put a worse taste in people's mouth. And I didn't think that was possible, but yeah. the conservatives really proved us wrong on that. And there was one good, one really good thing in my mind that I quite enjoyed. It's an old ASEC point that we advocated for at the last budget is a, well, it's kind of a, kind of a form of it. What we had advocated for, maybe John, you want to go into a little bit more depth in explaining it, is we were suggesting that the government create a tax credit for businesses that employ recent graduates so that it would be an incentive to get those students into employment faster once they were out of their out of their education and that would be great we would love that and they didn't take our information very like to heart very much i think they had some more traction with some of the other things that we had asked for but in this most recent budget which this is a thing that i would have emphasized really really heavily is that out of um, uh, Schweitzer's new ministry, Jobs, Economy, and Innovation, like they announced a um, benefit to employers that hire or to train new workers. And that's an economic advantage that I think is really necessary right now for, for those businesses. And while we would have phrased it a little bit differently or formulated the policy a little bit differently to focus on new graduates for because post-secondary is our emphasis here, I think that that covers a lot of much needed ground. But the $150 million doesn't go as far, I think, as it needs to to rebuild the economy. And it certainly doesn't go as far as it could if it had gone into uh, student aid or backfill funding for the institutions or things like that. So do, do, you, have, do you agree with me on that? Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, at the very least, I think you can agree that they didn't do enough advertising on that awesome initiative. Yeah, so you're talking about, uh, it's called the Jobs Now program that the government uh, announced coming out of the 
out of uh, Minister Schweitzer's ministry. Um, so the Jobs Now program, it's a good step in the right direction. Uh, 150 million uh, is not going to go very far. But you know what? I, I, I mean, I'm a business guy. Generally speaking, I don't think that the government should be subsidizing just general employment. They should be creating an economy that that creates employment uh, organically. Um, but given the circumstances with COVID and the drop in oil prices, I, I can understand a, a temporary kind of boost like this. Um, the reason that we had suggested it for youth employment rather than just general employment um, is because we were looking at the job prospects for, for recent graduates and how they had just dwindled. And so we wanted to create some kind of um, some kind of stimulus around the youth employment market to try to drive that. But I think instead of doing that, the government's focusing very much on the work integrated learning and micro-credentialing uh, aspects of their strategy. So uh, we'll see how that pans out. Um, Which we don't disagree with. Like we very much agree no. with the work integrated learning, the micro-credentialing. Those are all good. It's just the other portion of our argument was that, look, like youth, recent graduates, people under 30, historically an underemployed demographic. And there's something that the government could do about that. And it would just be a tax incentive for employers to hire people fresh out of school. Emmanuel, the, the, we are dealing with a government that ideologically believes the way to attract new investment and diversify your economy is to undercut your competitors' corporate tax rate. Right? Yeah. Uh, and and there there is something to that. I, I being the red Tory that I am, I don't 100% disagree. I just don't think it can be the the main, you know, the only thrust of your strategy, right? I do think that you're going to have to make some sort of tax incentives or, you know, targeted investments uh, in order to attract new and different kinds of industries to Alberta in order to in increase, you know, your, your employment. However, in their budget, their calendar year assumptions are, you know, they're, they're forecasting almost 5% real GDP growth for 2021. And, you know, uh, 3.7 in 2022, you know. Hold on, Jason, hold on. Just for our listeners to go back to our last episode, because we talked about the difference between real and nominal changes. So you're saying it's a real change of 5%? Well, it's 4.8. They're, they're saying that for 2021, the Alberta economy will grow in real terms 4.8%. And so 3.7 the following year, 3.3 the following year, and 3.1 the following year. Give me that money and talk, John. Give me that money talk. Good luck with that. So 4.8% so in real terms is equivalent to a 7 or 8% nominal 8 growth. 8.8 year over year. Yeah. Yep. So a 10% year over year growth almost is is unheard of. That's like 1980s level inflation and growth. Well, I mean, there is, there, there, okay. They, okay, my crystal ball's in the shop right now. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there are, there are more intelligent economists out there than, than me with my minor in economics. But um, I, I do see that there is going to be some, I mean, there is a lot of spending that's pent up, right? Um, sure. And, and once our economy opens up again, people are going to spend some money. However, yeah. I do think going forward that Canadians' marginal propensity to save is going to be higher than it was pre, pre-pandemic. And that's for two reasons. One is I think a lot of people learned their lesson about how much of an emergency fund and savings to have. And I also think that growth is going to be sluggish beyond that initial burst of a couple of quarters of spending because people are levied up. There's a lot of consumer debt. It's, it, it, is, it was at historic levels before the pandemic. And you also have a historic levels now 
uh, it, when you're not in wartime of government debt. And so I don't know how you achieve uh, these kinds of, of levels of growth, um, especially if you're trimming spending, because either, you know, taxation drags the economy, but so do spending reductions. And so I, I just don't know, I don't know where these, these numbers are coming from. I can see that it in they do list, you know, the 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 forecasts from other agencies, and and some of them are in line with what the government is saying, and and but most of them won't go beyond 2023, like they won't do beyond, like they won't do with forecasts like BMO, CIBC, Laurentian, National Bank, RBC, Scotia, TD. None of them will do their forecast on GDP for 2023 or 2024. Right, uh, Jason. Let me ask you this. So I agree with you that there's going to be lots of spending once the vaccine's rolled out and once life returns somewhat back to normal. Uh, I agree that there's pent-up spending and people have just been sitting around at home, and so it's it's artificially depressed right now. So I, I agree with you on all that. However, and here's my point, is the government is predicting in real terms that the GDP is going to grow by 4.8%. That would mean that they need organic growth of roughly 4.8%. What I'm saying is, yes, there's going to be lots of spending, but that's all going to be inflationary spending. So the inflation rate is going to eat all that up. There's no way in real terms we're going to grow the province by 5%. If we grow in real terms at all next year, I would be shocked. I think we have a 0% real growth and we have a 3 or 4 or 5% growth, but that's basically inflation. Okay, yeah, gentlemen. I mean, so our, so our, our real for 2018 was one9 Right. That was the actual for 2018. So if their yeah. numbers are so out of whack, where do you think their assumptions on real growth are coming from? Hopes and fantasies. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but I, I do think that they are partially basing at least the next year on some of these forecasts from other agencies, you know, including Conference Board of Canada at Stokes. You know, and Conference Board of Canada says the real growth for 2021 is going to be 6.1, you know, and Stokes says it's going to be 4.2. So, yeah, you know, Canada. that's, that's a big, that's a big variance. They might've just said, Hmm, we'll take the average. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't work in the ministry and I don't know how, I don't know how finance comes up uh, with these numbers. I just, they may well be close to the mark for 2021. I don't know how they get to those numbers in the subsequent three years. Yeah. I don't know. The only thing I've got in common with Taves is that we've both recently bought cowboy boots. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know well, where their numbers are coming from. They're a comfortable uh, pair of footwear. Well, they're extremely mm -hmm. comfortable. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it does It does feel to me that, um, like you said, they're, they're lowballing revenue and that they're, they're, um, that they're overestimating on real growth, which, you know, like, it's a professional budget. Like, I feel, I feel very uncertain. I keep going back to my concern of transparency where I'm like, where is, where is all the map? Like, where did you work out? everything. I don't, I don't know. There's going to be a lot of changes on post-secondary that are coming up with the AB 2030 review, which is going to be in the next two months. Like there will be a lot of changes that we sort of weren't anticipating or that we are anticipating, but that weren't included in the budget that are probably going to change our, our sort of commentary on the situation. Well, just keep in mind, Emmanuel, that, you know, the government of Alberta is what, like a $50 billion operation and i don't like i said at the very beginning you know i've never seen a budget that caused people to set off fireworks but i've also never seen a budget that met its its you know forecast 
So Paul Martin was infinitely, you know, wildly off on his forecast year over year when he was finance minister federally. But it doesn't mean that he got all of his policy choices wrong, right? It's it, it's hard to it's hard to 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 eyeball this stuff, and uh, so I don't really want to blame the government that much about it. I mean, they, they may well be right that in 2023, 20, 24, oil is $56 a barrel, even though it's $62 today. You know, times can change. Oil can tank, right? You know, uh, they can decide uh, on the other side of the world to open the taps, and all of a sudden the price gets depressed. We don't know that. So I, I do think in one sense it's refreshing that they're not budgeting for 80 or $90 oil like we saw in previous budgets from in previous governments where it's just like everything's going to rain, man. No. Yeah. So it's a little refreshing to, to see a more conservative estimate. No, I, so I, ta- I, I take your point really well. I don't want to be too well. hard on them for that. But. Yeah. I take your point really well that um, even good policies or even good um, even good predictions can end up going bad and, and that the Alberta economy right now is a bag of squirrels, by which I mean pretty unpredictable. So how are we supposed to come up with or how are, how are they supposed to come up with an accurate assessment right now? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very difficult time. But what we do know is that post-secondary is being disproportionately cut. And as our primary concern, I think... I'm absolutely focused on that. I'm very focused on the idea that we still don't know a number of the important details coming out of the budget and the 2030 review. And I think both of you have made really good assessments, being more familiar with the economics and the uh, and the finance aspect of it than I am. So I appreciate your feedback here. Uh, is there any other, are there any other comments that uh, either of you would like to throw down? I know that this episode is about, <laughs> about 45 minutes shorter than our last one, or it will be probably after a little bit of editing, but uh I think that kind of goes to the fact that, you know, John and I spent so much time explaining some of the kind of details, the finer details of the bio, of the of the budget before we ended up actually talking about our predictions in the first one. And this one's more just like an analysis. And it is inherently pretty difficult to analyze a budget. We just you, you can't know 2020 vision. You, you can't you can't know what it's going to be like in the upcoming year. So. I appreciate your feedback on, on it now. And uh, if you have any other comments, I'd love to hear them before we send it off. Two comments. Uh, I've been deep in Excel land for the past 24 hours. So looking at, at provincial revenues, looking at uh, some of the plans, looking at the kind of detailed numbers and charts, doing some analysis there. Um, it looks as if advanced education is only budgeting for about a 0.7% increase in enrollment in the next academic year. Yeah, I would, I would eat my hat if that was the case. Yeah. So they've budgeted uh, in tuition revenues for an increase from actual numbers this year to next year of 7.7%. And we know that tuition is increasing by 7%. So that only leaves the uh, remaining 0.7 uh, for enrollment growth. Like we know that it's going to be way above that. So already this government's kind of, you know, not preparing for next year. And, and those numbers are going to be kind of skewed. Contingent, contingent on an in-person return, if, if, right? No one's vaccinated and no one can come back on campus, but it, it is not looking that way to us right now. Yeah, sorry I interrupted you there, buddy. I was just going to explain, or I was going to point out that like it's contingent to an in-person return and sort of the end of COVID. Yeah. But assuming that that happens, you we have to assume that the decrease in enrollment over the last year, the in, the the online learning year, we can assume that there were a number of prospective students who postponed their trip to post-secondary due to the online nature of the education that they were receiving and the sort of inherent dangers of going to school in the middle of COVID-19 pandemic. But then if we do have an in-person return and COVID-19 is largely sorted out, we have the vaccine rollouts, at least the first couple of stages where you have seniors and then people in middle age groups and healthcare workers and stuff, once they're covered, there's going to be a much decreased threat. 
And it's it's certainly my assumption, and from what I've heard from you now, John, I know that you agree, uh, that um, we're going to be seeing a tuition or a, a, an enrollment increase. And I don't know if in the first year it's going to be in line with what our predictions were based on the post-2008 enrollment numbers in the United States in colleges, which was very high, like between 20 and 25%, I think, increases in enrollment. I don't know if we're going to see that yet. But definitely over the next few years, we'll be seeing double-digit enrollment increases just because all those people used to be like, no, very few people were, I'm, what I'm trying to say is there was a large cohort of people who jo- chose not to go to post-secondary. And then in, as soon as in-person school is going to return, I bet you they're coming in force. Totally. hundred percent. We've already heard those anecdotes from, from many different uh, potential students who've just deferred entry by a year or, or whatever the case may be. The only other point I wanted to bring up uh, has to do with uh, student financial aid. Um, it took a bit of investigating, uh, but I think I figured out the government's numbers on their on their books here. When you look at the student financial aid expense line year to year to year, it looks like student aid's actually declining rather rapidly. However, when you look on the balance sheet or the statement of financial position for the government, they're actually giving out pretty consistent amounts of loans each year. And their loan portfolio or the, the aggregate amount of loans that they hold actually remains fairly consistent year to year. So the big change actually that we're, that is uh, attributing to this seeming reduction in student aid is the increase in the interest rate that happened last year. They're actually making more revenues off of it. So it's bringing the net expense down, even though they're giving out the same amount of money and they hold roughly the same amount of debt. Um, and that's just really disappointing to see because they're actually not making it more accessible or more affordable for students. They're not making any more money available for student aid or upfront grants. Um, they're just making extra money off the back of students by increasing the interest rate and it's lowering their government's expenses and it just makes their books look better. Um, yet we're not getting any of that extra value or any extra um, of our policy asks that uh, that we've been asking for for multiple years now. So again, they've really missed the opportunity to win over some stakeholders and to start preparing for the next election. Uh, and it just looks like they're going to stick on their path of austerity and, and trying to, you know, uh, bring spending in line with, you know, made up metrics that, that they've pursuit. But uh, to me, it just looks like a money grab on the backs of students and young people and families of this province. And and really, again, super disappointed uh, in what we saw yesterday. Well, that's dark. Kind of sounds like a good place to end. Jason, (laughs) tell me about your thoughts. Allow me to brighten the mood with with a well, actually, I'm going to darken the mood. Sorry. Nice. No, I love that. I'm I love the darkness. Think about if the government continues down this road where institutions are are not supposed to be reliant on public funding, right? They're publicly controlled, publicly legislated, but they're not supposed to rely on public funding. So what does that do? Like if you're if you're the CFO of Nate or the University of Alberta or University of Calgary, any any other post-secondary, what do you do, right? You need you want more revenue. Um, it's it's you're not addressing necessarily your administrative non-union salary grid. What do you do? You're going to try and get more revenue, right? So, you know, your credit students have certain things that are regulated, but your non-credit students are a little bit different. So maybe you start moving some of what is your credit programming over into non-credit programming, and then you can charge whatever you want. And then you, what are you going to rely more and more on? And the government seems to want to do this as well. You're starting to treat people like dollar bills and you're importing them, 
right, international students, where there, there's really no hard regulation on how much institutions can charge them. And, you know, in my mind, the people that I'm most, most concerned about are international students, because they're paying way more than what domestic students are. And domestic students are already paying, in my view, too much, right? So you're going to start to look at that as a business item, rather than something that is, you know, a societal good, or an economic good for the province, or even a humanitarian good. No, you're going to look at it as your bottom line, you're going to be able to generate revenue by, uh, by having a bigger and bigger portion of your business model be devoted to making sure that you can get people that you see as dollar bills coming into the country. And I just like, we need to start treating people like human beings. You know, the amount that, that, that international students are paying in Alberta is in my view, obscene. John, you're absolutely right. You're, you're hundred percent right, Jason. The government is planning to, to adjust the mix of domestic and international students. I think we're sitting between five and 10% right now for international student population as a, as a proportion of total student population in Alberta. So they want to go from five to 10% all the way to 40%. Virtually half of the students in our province, they want to make international. And it's for the exact reason that you just said, there's no regulation. Well, there's virtually very little regulations on international students. Pricing is, is different. They can charge different multiple and yeah, it's it's just money that they get. So well, and the thing is, the thing is, John, is that we need international students. Al, you know, Alberta and Canada in general need international students. We need them economically. It, it, we we absolutely do. Yet we're not treating them fairly. And right. I have I just have a, a very strong objection to that because these are human beings that are coming from other parts of the world to come to Canada and a lot of them stay here and become contributing members of society, contributing to the economy, contributing expertise, skilled labor. And then we're just gonna we're just gonna charge them three times or more or, or four times as much as what a domestic student pays. I mean that 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 should make anybody angry. Yeah, it's not the only place where you're seeing institutions using different classifications of um, of students as kind of like a cost saving measure. Because what we're talking about here is that credit programming for domestic students is controlled by the regulation, which ends up being basically like a consumer protection measure where you're like, yeah, okay, tuition can only go up by X amount per year. And we're sort of arguing over the nitty gritty of that. But this conversation that we're having is very much focused on those students who are not protected by those different regulations. So, so Jason, your point is that International students have to deal with what's called the international student differential, which is the the multiplication of the amount of domestic tuition that international students are forced to pay. So at some institutions, it'll be like 2.7 times more than the domestic tuition is what is applied to international students. At some schools, almost as much as five, like well into the four point whatevers. But that point is totally valid. But I do want to make the make the observation that it's not the only classification of student who's facing the same problems. Like as we're talking about this, as we're talking about micro-credentialing, those kinds of different smaller programs that we're talking about, we're leaving out a huge classification of students known as the continuing education students, which are like adult upgrading students or ESL language classes or other sorts of stuff like that, where they are not for credit programming, which means they're not given that consumer protection of the tuition regulations, uh, the tuition cap or those other regulations regarding extraordinary tuition increases. So those guys are facing, well, what I'm saying is we're seeing more and more and a worrying trend that uh, more and more programming is being introduced into continuing ed uh, or con ed programming 
and that those tuitions are going to be used as cost-saving measures, as budgetary measures, rather than additional services that the institutions provide along the same protective lines as domestic tuition. It's tragic in yeah. my mind. And those students also don't get the representation of their students' associations in the same way because they're not they're not paying members because the act doesn't allow a student association to charge a membership fee to a student that isn't a credit student. Exactly. So, I mean, the all all of the all of the uh, resources that come to bear for domestic international credit students that the students association can bring to bear, and I believe it's significant. I think without students associations, tuition would be much much higher than it is, much more than I think people realize. There, there's in incredible value in students' associations, but continuing ed students don't get the same value. And so they're kind of left out without that consumer protection agent that's on campus that domestic and international credit students get. Yeah, I mean, it's, it just becomes a revenue driver. And and then does an employer look at, at, a, at a parchment that is gone through continuing ed the same way as they, they would if it had gone through a credit program? So people pay a lot more but are they getting the same employability of the other side? A lot of the discussion around uh, micro-credentialing, around uh, learning integrated work, uh, around kind of these uh, different ways to upskill and reskill. One of the points that ASEC has been adamant about is that any of these micro-credentials, any of these new courses must be considered credit programming and must be able to ladder into future other education. Those are like the two fundamental pieces. And it's going right back to what you're talking about, Jason, because there is now an economic incentive for institutions to take away credit programming and offer that exact same programming as non-credit because it's not regulated and they can do whatever they like. But all for all the reasons that you pointed out, that's just a bad idea for Alberta and for the system. And uh, hopefully, I think we're going to see some progress there because I really do think they want to see people be able to take a two or three course micro-credential, another two or three course micro-credential and combine them into something that's a, a bigger credential, a bigger piece of education. You know, the laddering is a huge part of it. It absolutely is. And, and that you know, the con ed, the international students definitely in our consciousness, like we're definitely talking and thinking about those issues, but I, it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind with con ed where those those students, those demographics, those nuances are not as commonly known as the rest of them. These are a bunch of questions that I was hoping to have at least some information on when we talked about it in the budget, but this is exactly the kind of thing that was left out of it. Like until we hear the full recommendations out of the 2030 review, we're not going to know what direction the institutions are going to be required to take on them. I, I think that we need to keep our public post-secondaries public, and that means publicly funded. And that doesn't mean that institutions shouldn't have to do some of their own own sourcing. But I, I do think that, you know, the vast majority of their funding should come from the public purse because it's a public post-secondary. And I, I don't think that the average voting Albertan right now under understands exactly how the direction is moving with respect to post-secondary education. If they knew just how, how, you know, how close we are moving towards an American-style post-secondary system, I think they'd be alarmed. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, a, that's my greatest fear is, is the Americanization of our system. It's, it's unregulated tuition. It's institutions that have no governance control and no accountability to the public that they serve. And, and it's a campus environment in which the student is treated like a consumer and nothing else. To me, that, that would be the greatest travesty of our system. And, and I think you're right, Jason. I think that there are certainly 
individuals and forces that are taking steps to try to make our advanced education system much more Americanized. But that is one of the great, amazing pieces of what ASEC does is try to push back against that and to try to bring public exposure to, to those kind of issues. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I think it's, I think moving forward, it's going to be a hot button topic that we need to keep our eye on and, and to fight for what we think is important and what we value as, as Canadians and as Albertans. And, and to me, that's, that's public education. Education. It's it's a strong public education sector, which is funded at least fifty percent by public funds, right? Otherwise, well, it's not it'd be, public. It'd be well over fifty percent, in my opinion, John. And and there like you. I said, like I'm, I, I I'm a red Tory at heart, and I don't like I for me when it comes to when it comes to these sorts of things, I, you know, public education is just it, it is a deal breaker for me. I'm pro capitalist, and I don't think that you know corporations are one hundred percent evil or any of that, I, 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 I do believe that there is some merit to the supply side argument, but it is a value that I have that I think most Albertans and most Canadians share, that we have a, a public post-secondary system. And I'm, I'm seeing that get eroded on purpose, on paper here in Alberta. And I'm alarmed. We're alarmed too. That's exactly our assessment of this of this current budget. The Americanization of post-secondary education in Alberta is a, is a real threat now. I'm certainly glad that uh, you know, as as the advocacy director at a dues-paying member of ASEC, I'm glad that uh, that we have such an excellent organization that's doing this kind of work on behalf of our our members and the students at at our member uh, associations and doing it the right way, doing it doing it uh, via lobbying and persuasion and research and information and not just you know getting a protest sign out every time that you they do something we don't like because uh, I'm. I'm yet, I've yet to see that be effective on the student movement side. We like to save that club in our bag for when we absolutely need it. So um, it's not off the table entirely, but certainly we like to, to approach things using the right process first and treat people like people first and, and give them the benefit of the doubt and, and give them a chance to do the right thing uh, and then hold them it, accountable if they don't. It, it absolutely should be a tool that's in your to- toolbox, although I think that in, you know, historically it, it might have been brought out of the tool bag uh, a little too often and you know there there's definitely a, a time and place for for a protest and i think that your protest is much more effective if there are many thousands of people there rather than a couple of dozen people shouting slogans if that happens the government looks out of the third floor window and says hmm i guess the majority of people aren't with them you you have to you have to have the people on your side and be willing to come out and and those are going to be very specific issues that are very fundamental to what we believe in and so I, I, I definitely appreciate the way that ASEC does their business. I think it provides great value to our member organizations, and I really appreciate the hard work. Well, I thank you, uh, Jason, for first of all, for your for your kind words and for joining us on the podcast for the first time. We'll have you on again. I can't wait for that. Um, and I, I, you know, that whole thing that you're saying about, you know, wanting to have the people on your side, I think that that's one of the really big takeaways of this kind of budget is that these are the issues. These are the incipient issues that will take the public's consciousness when when they understand the story. And that's what John and I and the rest of ASEC and Naomi and all of our, our student executives are trying to do is to bring it public attention to those issues because they don't just affect students. They really don't. Public post-secondary is a public good. It is a public good in Alberta. And that's what we're trying to protect. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you both so much for for joining us on uh, the follow-up episode here of Advancing Education. And uh, I can't wait to post this because this is going to be a juicy one. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) Have a great weekend. Thanks, Jason. Bye. Mm -hmm.